on the record on news talk a very good morning to you. It is Sunday the 9th of December and this is News Talks On The Record with me, Gavin Riley, with you today until 1 o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme, you can send in a text at 53106 at a cost of 30 cent or we're on Twitter at News Talk FM or I am at Gav Riley. Lots to come up on the programme in the next two hours, but we'll start off, as we always do, with our look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel, Tom Malloy, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College, Dr Ilona Duffy, who is a GP in Monaghan and Medical Director for the North East Doctor on call service uh, and Richard Oakley editor of the Times Ireland edition you're all very welcome and good morning and thank you all for joining us um, now before we look uh, talk, go to you guys uh, well, let's have a quick look at the newspapers uh, the Sunday Independent forget tax cuts put the country first um, that is the apparent uh, results of a Cantor Millwood brand opinion poll it says that Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's pledge to raise the level at which people pay the top rate of income tax has failed to capture the mood of the country according to the Sunday Independent Cantor Millwood brand opinion poll the Nationside survey has found that by a two to one majority the public says the government should focus on improving public services ahead of more tax cuts. 64% want to improve public services. Only 30% say cut taxes first, something which I'm sure will have some knock-on effects on confidence and supply, which we'll talk about uh, in a little while. Sunday Times has a follow-on story to that ongoing concerns about data security at INM. It reports that Derek Mishak, who is a cybersecurity consultant involved in a number of alleged data breaches at the media company, told a Deloitte investigation commissioned by INM last year that Island Capital, a company owned by O'Brien, had been invoiced but for work he carried out two years earlier. Dennis O'Brien is, of course, INM's largest shareholder uh, and lots of other stories as well, including a sidebar, which we'll come back to in a few minutes, that two of Theresa May's most senior allies are preparing for a second EU referendum behind her back. Uh, more on that and on. The Sunday Business Post, remarkably, the front page is a Brexit-free zone. No Brexit straps, no Brexit stories, no Brexit nothing. Uh, a small oasis uh, in a world of calm. Um, the lead story on that, property tax overhaul delayed by Shane Ross's demand to exempt pensioners. Michael Brennan reports that the overhaul of the property tax has been delayed due to demands from Minister for Transport Shane Ross for an exemption from pensioners. The government has worked out a new system to avoid steep rises for property tax owners uh, when houses are revalued next year for the first time. Uh, Homeowners will now pay different rates depending on where they live instead of a single current nationwide system uh, which is meant to bring in some new revenue but it's been delayed being brought in because Shane Ross is still looking for more exemptions on it. Uh, Below the fold, uh, also a significant story which on any other weekend I think would, would get a little bit more more coverage. Now, Leo Varadkar is refusing to sign off on a request to extend the deadline for the inquiry into the controversial sale of site serve to businessman Dennis O'Brien amid growing doubts over the future of the probe. As we know, the judge running that, Brian Cregan, is looking for an extension to the deadline until March 2020. He was supposed to report back at the end of 2015 and Leo Varadkar apparently uh, not entirely clear on whether he wants to give that an extension. The Irish Mail on Sunday, back to Brexit. Stockpile medicines is the very uh, alarmist headline on the front of that. The government has given top secret orders to prepare for the stockpiling of medicines, the widespread recruitment of customs officials and the preparation of emergency legislation for a disorderly Brexit. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. I should have said alarming rather than alarmist on that. Uh, and the Sunday World leads with that that very, very uh, grim story yesterday about the discovery of a baby's body on a beach in Balbriggan. It reports that the baby had not been subjected to deliberate harm. So that's on the front of the Irish newspapers, but of course there is still a lot on the front of the British newspapers too, and you can guess where they all start. The Observer leads with a warning from a cross-party group of MPs that the deadlock over Brexit is blocking vital domestic policy reforms. The Sunday Telegraph leads with Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary, who says the country will flourish without a Brexit deal. Good to know. That, that saves us an awful lot of bother. Uh, the Sunday Times, though, as you reported, two of the Prime Minister's se- senior allies are preparing for a second referendum behind her back, according to the Sunday Times, in what the paper describes as another Tory civil 
War. It reports that David Liddington, who is in effect Theresa May's Deputy Prime Minister, held talks on Thursday with Labour MPs to build a cross-party coalition. And it also reports that the number 10 Chief of Staff is reported to have told a Cabinet Minister that a second vote is the only way forward. Uh, we are joined on the line by Adam Bolter, Editor-at-Large of Sky News. Adam, good morning to you. Um, good morning. It seems very uh, clouded exactly what's going to go on in Britain now because we see two papers this morning the Mail and the Sunday Times, both reporting uh, that uh, Theresa May's Chief of Staff, Gavin Barlow, wants another referendum. He's come out on Twitter in the last couple of hours and confirmed he does not want a second referendum. So what on earth is going on? Well, uh, I think what's going on is that members of the government are trying to prepare uh, for alternative options if Mrs May is not successful uh, in persuading Parliament uh, to back her version of the deal that was discussed in Brussels uh, last week. And the reality is that at the moment, uh, nobody can quite see how the arithmetic would add up to get that deal through. Uh, but there is an element in all of this of spelling out what the alternatives might mean uh, in the hope, at least as far as her team is concerned, uh, that then uh, people will think, well, uh, we better make the best of a bad job and go for the deal. Is this softening of the ground, though, Adam? Is that going to be tenable when Theresa May herself has so many times on the record in the last couple of weeks completely ruled out going back to the country again because it would be so divisive? Well, I mean, the reality is, if she can't get this through, and remember she says uh, she's going to make a... Uh, another push on the vote before January the 21st. If she can't get it through, they're going to be uh, well under 100 days left. That mark is going to be passed this coming Wednesday. Mm. And at that point, uh, the government is going to have to look at its options. And basically, its options are going to be uh, either crashing out uh, of uh, the uh, European Union uh, with uh, things like uh, that problem with medicines you suggested. There's another story in the London Sunday Times suggested Brits are going to be not to go on holiday uh, over the period uh, of uh, Brexit on the 29th of March. So that's one option, which I have to say has its champions uh, uh, in the British press and in Parliament uh, and elsewhere. The other option uh, is to somehow put the brakes on, and clearly uh, the way in which many people are suggesting the brakes could be put on uh, would be to hold another referendum. And a rather extraordinary statement from Mrs May last night attacking Tony Blair uh, for advocating uh, that particular course of action and suggesting there's back-channeling going on to Brussels. Uh, why one ex-Prime Minister can't express their views uh, on an issue facing the nation, uh, I'm not quite clear on. Yeah, it's an odd one, all right. Um, Adam, I'm looking at the conclusions from the European Council Summit, the meeting without the UK that took place on Thursday night, and this is where Theresa May had sought some legally binding assurances. And there, there is a clause in there that if the backstop were ever to be triggered, that it would uh, apply temporarily, and it says in black and white temporarily, unless and until it was superseded by a subsequent agreement. Now, Theresa May tried to make some hay out of that on Friday. She said that these were legally binding. That That is dubious, but uh, one would think that in other circumstances that this ought to be uh, hailed by Theresa May or indeed by, by other people around her as being a really, really meaningful concession that the other 27 leaders were now saying in black and white the backstop would only be temporary. So why isn't it getting the currency that it might deserve? Well, they're saying it would only be temporary unless... So, in other words, it could potentially be permanent. And uh, as you know, they also took out language from that communique uh, saying, that, uh, saying that the backstop was not desirable. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's been reported that the Irish and the French were particularly uh, keen on that. And, uh, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a real problem with the backstop that even uh, supporters uh, of Britain remaining in the European Union see, which it is that it does appear 
uh, that in perpetuity the European Union is proposing uh, to dictate how Britain manages its borders. And that really has gone down uh, extremely badly. Isn't that unsellable then or unspinnable, Adam? Because it's going to be the situation that every time a European leader tries to offer clarifications around the intentions or the purpose of all of this, all they're actually going to be doing is confirming in an indirect way that in fact the backstop could apply forever. Well, yeah, unless uh, clearly what what the Conservative Brexiteers would like uh, is probably the impossible, which is a reopening of the withdrawal agreement uh, to uh, take this out or to move it into uh, the area for future negotiations. Now, that's probably not going to happen. But if you look, for example, at the arguments that have been put in the Sunday Telegraph in London today, uh, you know, there is a clear allegation there from their columnist, Janet Daly, and a similar one, frankly, in the Sunday Times today from uh, Dominic Lawson saying that this Irish backstop is really uh, a fuss about nothing and the European Union should recognise that in practice neither side wants to put up the border, but it refuses to do so. And so from, from their perspective, from the perspective of the people who want to uh, get out, uh, they see this as proof of... Uh, Europe wanting to meddle and dictate in perpetuity. Yeah, and certainly it's it's interesting to see exactly how it's been uh, reported over there and whether there is any prospect of a a breakthrough in time. And I remember speaking to Leo Varadkar about six months ago about the idea of who would police a hard border or who would mount it up. And he fudged that at the time and he suggested that you could just go back and delay Article 50 to to get around that whole question. Well, obviously he he would prefer that and so would many uh, British uh, Remainers. But that is precisely the red rag to the bull of uh, uh, the people who had the majority behind them in the referendum to leave. Indeed. Uh, Absolutely. Final question for you, Adam. It seemed that Theresa May was sent home with a little bit of homework uh, by the other European leaders that they had said, and Leo Varadkar said this explicitly, um, that the EU27, they did want to help, but that they could only help when they knew that what they would give her would be enough to drag this over the line. Um, In all your time spent around Whitehall and SW1, what do you think would be enough of an assurance to get this over the line? Or is this treaty uh, destined for failure and then needs to be completely really dispensed with? Well, in a sense, it's an impossibility because in a democracy, Mrs May can never be quite sure she can get things through. Uh, So Mr Varadkar is asking for something that's impossible. As I say, if there were to be a material change uh, on uh, the Irish backstop in the actual withdrawal agreement, which is a very big if indeed, I think Mrs May would get the support uh, of a majority in the House of Commons. Uh, Short of that, uh, her tactic is simply to try and wear people down and get uh, very close to the line and say, well, look, uh, you haven't got a better idea you can deliver, so you better go with mine. So is that where this is going then? The fact that the the vote now may not take place until the third week of January, that really it's a game of brinkmanship and that Theresa May will say, well, if you don't have a better deal, then this is the only one you're ever going to get. Well, that, I think, is her tactic. What is interesting, and you were mentioning it when you are going through the newspapers, is these other cabinet ministers beginning to float alternatives. I think it's perfectly conceivable that if nothing has moved by, we suspect it would be around January the 18th, actually, that this vote would take place, this meaningful vote, then there may be uh, pressure in Cabinet to make other proposals rather than uh, bring something forward and lose that vote. I mean, I think that could happen over the next uh, uh, three weeks, four weeks or so. But overall, uh, that is Mrs May's tactic. She's a very stubborn woman indeed. Once she's made up her mind, she sticks with it. She believes it's her duty to take Britain out of the European Union, and she believes she's got the best deal possible. So she is simply going to try and look everyone else in the eye, wear them down, and say, uh, you haven't got a better idea, have you? You better back me. Now, you may think that's uh, 
uh, on a wing and a prayer, but that looks like where we're heading. Uh, very high-stakes brinkmanship if that vote only takes place about 60 days before the UK is due to crash out one way or another. Uh, Adam Bolton, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on On The Record. Um, let's go back to our newspaper panel, uh, Dr Alona Duffy, Tom Malloy and, and Richie Oakley. Uh, Richie, this story on the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Uh, stockpiling medicines, uh, widespread recruitment of customs officials, preparation of emergency legislation. It's beginning to look like the mood music from our side of the water is that we don't expect this deal to get through. Uh, well, we can't afford not to, I suppose, prepare for a no-deal scenario. And I think the, the, the government have been preparing all along for this, but haven't really spoken about it because the minute you talk about it, then you, you, you're, you're into maybe making it a possibility mm. um, or, or suggesting that there's problems with the deal. Um, th- this story is, is in the mail, but the, uh, Hugh O'Connell in the Business Post has a, a similar story, I think, from the same uh, Cabinet uh, document yeah. where he is saying that ministers are basically being told that un- unless they have something urgent to bring forward in the new year, uh, not to bother yeah, to Yeah, basically nothing's going to get legislated for in the first quarter. <laughs> yeah, that the doll will be sitting all night uh, and, and all day to try and pass things that we that we will need in the case of a, of a no deal. Uh, as there's a, there's, a, there's a minister quoted, you're talking about the doll sitting morning, noon and night to pass key pieces of legislation, to keep essential things going, to keep plans in the air. You're talking about the huge things that people haven't comprehended. Mm. And this is the, the danger uh, of a no deal. I mean, as, as damaging as it will be for the UK, it'll be seriously damaging um, for Ireland. And ironically, you could have a situation where in trying to protect the, the most important thing to us, which is is, is the open border and, and the Good Friday Agreement and the All Ireland economy, we could put ourselves in a situation where uh, we end up with, with no deal. Um, but I don't see any other way the government could have gone other than to, to hold our line. And we're getting a lot of criticism from British ministers now of the the Irish not backing down and everything. Mm. We're we're a sovereign country and we're protecting our own interests. And I think the government had no other option. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting though to see the amount of reporting on that in the last couple of days, this idea that by asking for so much the government has risked the whole thing coming down and how it seems that the government is so reliant on not having a hard border that it perhaps will now look for the enforcement of a deal that doesn't have uh, any hope of getting passed across the water. Uh, Tom, is there anything that jumps out in the papers for you this morning? Well, I think it's Brexit, isn't it? This is one of those weeks where the whole thing has, chickens have come home to roost and, and we're really seeing the the limits of the British constitution, I suppose. What what what? What strikes me at this stage is we, we, we're talking a lot about process, but we're talking about the process as if, as if it couldn't be changed. In a normal European country, you have a head of state who sits above the political system and who takes action when the political system reaches a logjam. The problem for Britain, of course, is that it's a monarchy. And the Queen is 90 years old, and she can't step in and say, enough of this nonsense, we're now going to do the following. But in most countries, that's what would happen. We would expect President Higgins to form a government of some kind if the present government weren't working. So we need Queen Elizabeth to to don a red, white and blue cape and step in and save all this? I think Britain needs to stop being a monarchy. You know, it it needs to rethink. (laughs) No, no, this is is kind of... There are two problems here. One problem is you have a first-past-the-post system that doesn't allow for kind of a variety of voices to be heard in the House of Commons over many years. And therefore, we've got to this kind of ludicrous uh, crunch situation because rational actors haven't been you know, involved. Mm. And then secondly, we don't have anyone who can step in. So, so it, th- th- what this Brexit crisis shows really is that Britain hasn't revamped its constitution in more than 100 years. I'm surprised that they don't see that, that, that their, their system is not fit for so purpose. So they, they need somebody who can be a neutral actor who isn't in the day-to-day realm, but who somehow isn't the Queen. Well, maybe, maybe if it were, you know, one of the young princes or somebody, you know, with, with energy, but, but, but it's just too late. I mean, it's, anyway, that's what, what strikes yeah. me about Brexit as I look at it now, that, that the country is ungovernable. 
and, and we're all going to suffer as a result. And, and the, the, the constitution needs to be to be changed. Prince Harry, if you're listening, it is your time to shine, <laughs> my friend. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, uh, Richie pointed out that, that story that's in both the Mail and the Sunday Business Post about the uh, the very secretive cabinet memo that was sent around, this four-page memo, which was handed out in person. Apparently, they were all individually numbered to make sure that they were all handed back afterwards. Nobody was allowed to bring it out for fear it would be leaked. Yeah, it's in two of the Sunday newspapers anyway. Um, Ilona Duffy, is there anything that strikes you about Brexit or anything that jumps out in the newspaper coverage? Yeah, I suppose even listening this morning, we talked about it. It's all the kite flying that's going on at the moment. And I think, number one, you always got to remember that Theresa May was a Remainer initially. But she it's a bit like she's such a black and white person. She's been given this role. She's going to go with it. But you have to wonder if she's waiting to hear that there is a shift in the mood with the public. And perhaps that then she's looking for the... A chance mm-hmm. at a later date to kind of go back to them. I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel sorry for her. I have to say she's been vilified so much and she's really in there doing a job that she probably Sh- never felt Should we be doing. sorry for her though when, okay, no doubt she's a very tenacious woman and she seems to have put in an awful lot of errors this week. She's really the Prime Minister running on Duracell, Bunny, Rab- uh, batteries at this stage. But it seems that every time that she's presented with a real major crossroads where she's required to take decisive action, that more often than not she takes whatever is good for her. That she could have had this decisive vote in the House of Commons last Tuesday. If the deal had been rejected, she could go back to Brussels and say, right, this isn't working, give me something new. But instead she fudged to try and say her own skin. Uh, Richie, you're nodding away on this and it seems that ultimately then we've had a fudge where nothing gets achieved. Yeah, I, I thought the idea of put, putting the vote, get, getting the vote, if, if it was defeated, then you go back to, to Europe and you could say, look, you know, this isn't going through. Because yeah. now she's looking for concessions on a deal that hasn't been rejected. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I mean, I, I don't think she's one of these politicians that wants to stay in politics for the sake of getting out brought everywhere in a Mercedes. I think she is a, a, a conviction person. I think she genuinely has a belief in public service. I think she genuinely thinks this has been voted through by Britain and it is her job. Like She, she, she didn't want this, but it is her job to deliver it. I don't know how she manages uh, to keep going. There's a fantastic piece by Caroline Wheeler, a kind of a profile of her, and they're saying, they're saying anyone would imagine... This in the Sunday Times. This in the Sunday Times, yeah, that, 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 that she looked wrung out after everything she's been through this week. But she doesn't. She's apparently full of energy. We're told that when she does look tired, she looks haggard with bags under her eyes, grey skinned, washed out and completely exhausted. So I, I don't think she'll thank her aides for that description <laughs> of her. But when we see her looking like that, we can all uh, start to get worried. The issue is now um, that they are talking about another referendum. But how do you do that referendum? You ask for no deal, uh, remain or May's deal, but that's three options. Yes, apparently you can't do that. So apparently yeah. you have to do two and then go back to one. Um, the Mail actually has a good piece about how that's not really possible. The Mail also has an interesting take on it where they say that she loads Leo Varadkar um, and mm. that... So much has, so that she can't have a relationship with him. And that she's actually delegated dealing with the Irish to a, to a second. Now that is particularly worrying because... And it's also not good for Britain because once you get to the point where you're into trade talks and, you know, you get if we ever get past this initial point, mm. they are going to need Ireland to help them negotiate uh, in the EU because it's in our interest to get a good deal for them at that stage. Yeah. So while we're protecting our interests and we're potentially falling out with them as a result, that puts us in a very difficult position. I was saying, uh, the, you know, the archives are out this year uh, now. The, the papers have seen them and we, we write about them yes, in January. Yeah. And I was saying I cannot w- hope I live long enough to see the archives from this year to see what's going on in the background in terms of the relation between mm. the two. 
just on, on the point about the, the frosty relationships between the two, I'm struck that if Brexit wasn't happening and if Northern Ireland was still the big thing, that you'd, you'd surely want to have the Prime Ministers of this jurisdiction and the one next door with a good working relationship because after Brexit is long gone, <coughs> Northern Ireland and its issues will still be there and you'd still want to have a well, good Well, like we're in a terrible situation. You've no government in, in Northern Ireland. You have the, the DUP totally falling out with, with the Irish government. You have the DUP potentially falling out with businesses in, in Northern Ireland. Like, I don't know how the DUP are withholding their own position. Uh, and then you have people, you know, the DUP backing up this 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 government in the UK. And it, it's a, a very very complicated s- scenario to, yeah. to deal with. Uh, well, I do have to go to a break, but just before I do, uh, Tom, very briefly, this idea of having a second referendum with this people's vote on the deal that's on the table, much as everyone in Ireland would like there to be some sort of referendum by which Britain can reverse its way out of the impasse that it's found itself. Um, would you have either two situations? Either you have Parliament not voting on a deal at all and just completely delegating its responsibility to the people, or you have the Parliament rejecting the deal and then that's still being uh, reinstated or overturned by Parliament some way. Either way, it sort of seems like there isn't really much of a point of having a Parliament at all if every time you have a tricky decision, you just kick it back to the people. Well, I mean, Parliament could say we, we, we've just failed to come to an agreement to state the obvious and we, we go to the people. I don't see any shame in, in talking to the people or asking the people for an opinion. I, 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 in fact, I hate the way we, we regard referendums as kind of a failure if the people vote against what the government wants. You know, the people are the ultimate source of authority and uh, I don't think that it's uh, a terrible problem. But you know, having said that, Personally, I believe that we're in the mess we're in today because we had a second referendum on Nice. You know, we as a people rejected Nice. Mm. Uh, That led to an opening of borders that most people didn't want. And it's for that reason, I believe, that the British have left have left Europe. So That it was this ever closer union and this free immigration that yeah, was ultimately yeah. what pushed them there. And personally I was in favour of it, but but you know, most people in Ireland weren't. That's that's the reality. We did a very anti democratic thing. And and that's like the original sin of the EU, as far as I'm concerned. It was mm-hmm. a terrible thing to just force a country to have a second referendum because we gave a result we didn't want. And I believe Brexit wouldn't happen today if we hadn't voted twice on Nice. That's an interesting, so, you know, it's an interesting thought. Let us know what you think on that. 53106 is the text number for 30 cent, or you can tweet us at News Talk FM. Uh, just before we go to the break, Ilona, you work in health services and on-call services that are right at the border region. What are the main concerns in your part of the world? Well, first of all, I suppose there's so many issues. Number one, the medication thing that is on the front page, I think, of one of the papers there. Yeah, the, the, Mail Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday. And that's a real issue because um, already we're seeing problems with medicines being in short supply here in the South because they are being stockpiled in the UK because a lot of our products are coming through. The, so their stockpiling the is interrupting our supply? Well, for a long time this is going on and I suppose now it, it perhaps may explain it. So we, we need to sort that out. Um, number two, there's a huge amount of cross-border um, kind of healthcare, like you even look at the Europe European um, healthcare kind of access scheme. I was seeing obviously the bus loads coming up with the Healy race from Kerry all mm. the way up to get their, their the eyes done and everything. Yeah. But we're seeing lots of that. We also know that lots of people who retired from the UK to Ireland have free medical care here because of their, their pensions coming from the UK. So there are a whole myriad of things including lots of cross-border schemes providing services in the south and, and service being provided in the north to southern patients as well. Awful lot to keep the doll up late at night and indeed the political correspondents who work there which is fabulous news for all concerned. <laughs> uh, you're listening to on, uh, on the Record on News Talk. It's Gavin Riley with you this morning. More from our panel in just a moment. On the Record. On, the record. on News Talk.
Welcome back. It's Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News with you until one o'clock this afternoon on News Talks on the Record. 53106 is the number for your text comments, or we're on Twitter at News Talk FM. I am at Gav Riley. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about confidence and supply and the fact that we're not going to get to have a general election for the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, but just before we move on from Brexit, uh, Richie Oakley, there was a particular piece in the Sunday Independent that called URI that you wanted to dwell on. Yeah, it's a piece by uh, Dan O'Brien, and he—I suppose—he's the only one looking at the bo- backstop uh, and saying, you know, should we be prepared? Should Ireland be prepared to compromise? And it's going to be a very co- uh, controversial position. He basically says the media have fully embraced the backstop idea, and no elected representative publicly opposes it. But he suggests that if we were to go back in it, and he says it'd be really difficult for the government. But if they were, they could look for some concessions that would maybe help uh, get get the, a deal through. One is he says that there should be a, a referendum in Northern Ireland on which which they want. They want to stay in the single market and the customs union. And the results of that could be used to help uh, Theresa May get her deal through, if that's possible. Another one he says is that maybe Ireland should be willing to accept customs checks on the, the, the side of the public, and he goes mm. through that. And the third is, thing he is says... Is that not accepting a hard border, though? Well, exactly. But, I mean, he's, he's saying that uh, the, the possibility of a no deal is even worse. I mean, this this is not going to be... The government are not going to do this. But it is interesting that, that Dan is saying this. The third thing he's saying is that, in, in, in addition to all this, they could look for a concession um, that they get a greater role in Northern Ireland, which would delight the DUP to no end, yeah. I imagine. It's, it's interesting, though, that he's he right and he's been riffing on this theme during the week, that it has to be this all or nothing now, that we either get everything we want or we'll end up getting nothing that we want and that maybe we just have to be a little bit more like Britain, perhaps, and just pick and choose which parts we're going to have to tolerate. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't agree with him. I, I think I think the government has done the right thing in in, 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 in you know sticking two feet down and saying this is where we're standing and we're not moving and it's got it's got 27 other European countries back in it. Mm. Uh, that's on the, the Sunday Independent today. Uh, some listener texts uh, about Brexit. Uh, Paul says, maybe being cynical, but is this robust support from the EU for Ireland a strategy by Europe to eventually force us to give in for other issues like tax harmonisation, digital taxes, etc., which could in fact impact us as badly or worse than Brexit? Interesting to watch. Tom, your thoughts on that? I, I think it's absolutely. I wouldn't call it a, a, a tactic, but you know that's the way the European Union works. It works as a very solid organization that when it's dealing with outside organizations you know it's very robust but it works in a collegial system and they absolutely expect us to to give in on the digital tax and other things i mean we we i hope nobody is under any illusions mm. about that because there's going to be a huge cost to this uh, loyalty but that's what happens you know when you're dealing with national sovereignty and protecting it's never cheap to protect national sovereignty but we will be paying a very large price for this uh, so-called collegiality. That's no. that's the European model. But I suspect people will point out that back in 2010, when we had an awful lot of collegiality from our, our friends in the, the EU and the EA and the IMF, that they were looking for concessions on corporate tax then, and, and they didn't get them. Uh, Simon has also texted, say, please don't use the term people's vote. Uh, who voted in the first referendum if it wasn't the people? The UK voted en masse to leave the EU, not to leave with a deal or to leave in name only. There have only been 48 EU-wide referendums. The only ones ever rerun were where people dared to displease the EU. That is not democracy, it's dictatorship. Um, I think, Simon, the point when people say people's vote, it's that they want to have a public vote on the deal that's on the table rather than having uh, just a, a people's vote, which is a referendum, of course, uh, but any other name. Uh, but interesting stuff. Keep your comments coming. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. Uh, now, speaking of people's votes, of course, this is the week in which we discovered that the people would not get a vote uh, on the makeup of the uh, the government or the makeup of the doll uh, for at least another 12 to 18 months. But it seems as if that that whole deal has been struck or that, that accord has been reached without any extra concessions being asked of or made on the part of Fine Gael. Uh, Alona Duffy, isn't it remarkable that we would have uh, a government getting an extra 12 to 15 months of a lease of life with apparently no quid pro quo from the opposition party at all? 
Well, perhaps that's because it is all about the people's vote and we, we see that things tend to go in a yo-yo motion. So in a way, uh, perhaps Fianna Fáil are saying that they need to wait until uh, Fianna Gael dip a bit more so that there will be that rebound effect to them. And I think um, they are making waves. You see Stephen Donnelly talking about health and health always is an issue. And so you think this has been done by Fianna Fáil with, with its own partisan interests in mind? Absolutely. <laughs> That's the only reason. So it's not the national interest? No, I don't think it's the national interest. They're waiting because they need that bounce effect to, to give them the up again. Well, the aforementioned Stephen Donnelly is with us in the next hour, so we can put that to him then. Um, Richie, uh, I know that your political editor, Neve Lyons, was making the case during the week that this was a remarkably uh, opaque thing, that there was very little transparency around all this, no documents produced. There, uh, if there was a review that we haven't seen any sight or sound of it, now apparently no written accord uh, between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Your thoughts? Well, it, the, the the talks were kept quite, quite secret. We didn't hear a lot of detail and luckily enough for both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, I suppose, um, we were kind of distracted by Brexit during the process mm. where, where, where the talks went ahead. It is remarkable that, that Micheál Martin stood up and said, you know, the deal has been renewed in the national interest, Brexit is too worrying and immediately he was asked, you know, what did you get? And he's, he, he didn't have anything. Well, I was there on, <laughs> on the plinth in Leinster House and he talked a little bit about, you know, is broadband covered in this? And he said, oh, we have concerns about broadband and then eventually after after 30 or 40 seconds he said but broadband isn't part of the deal yeah, and he uh, concerns about housing but there are now no new housing concessions at all yeah and, and I mean you, you'd ex- you can put this thing that he's taken a very noble uh, step for the government. Some people are saying this will work out really well for Fianna Fáil in the papers today and some people are saying it's a huge risk for Fianna Fáil and you know there's, there's different views there's actually different views on the same pages in most of the, the newspapers Um We've had parties before who acted in the national interest. They were smaller parties, though. Like, obviously, Labour acted in the national interest by introducing austerity measures, mm. even though they'd promised not to. Or the Greens uh, bringing down the Fianna Fáil government, but yeah. staying along to, to pass the budget, at and least. And they both, they both made this argument now that the, that the public should respect them for making these hard decisions, and the public absolutely slaughtered them on both occasions. Um, will this happen to, to Fianna Fáil? Bigger party, bigger general. You know, they're they're stronger at elections. They they have better candidates. They have a great election machine, and they've proven that in the past. Even when we thought that they they wouldn't do well, they they managed to do it. Um, I don't know. It, it's going to be really interesting. But for me, Martin must be getting it in the neck from the grassroots at the moment over this. You know, there is some dissatisfaction with his, within his own party. I suppose he's looking at it and go right. If I go now in the middle of Brexit. Uh, and yeah. we no, have, no one will uh, thank me for introducing extra ambiguity yeah, or, or you know I, we see all about this extra legislation the Dáil's going to have to introduce if there is no Dáil they can't do that they had, well, I, thought, I, I, thought, I actually thought to be an election this year and I thought what, the, what one thing that they might do is they might suggest that Leo Vragger shoots from the hip a little bit that he's not this statesman that he doesn't have this experience and that he's 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 not you know he's a bit volatile in terms of relations he with hasn't Britain led them into a general and, election and on Brexit but I mean you'd be like last week the headlines were you know Varadkar stands firm as as May gets last by, by mm. back like do you want to be going to an election when that I, I, and there are there's a few pieces in the paper today saying that things are slipping away for Fianna Gael a little you know the housing crisis is, is you know people aren't are, are really annoyed about that uh, health service issues uh, and that his popularity is, is dropping a little and maybe you know, Maybe Mio Martin is thinking further down the line it might be easier. Mm, to underline the, the gamble that Fianna Fáil might be taking on this, Tom, the, the Sunday Independent, which has that opinion poll this morning about uh, Fine Gael be, still being a bit six or seven points ahead of Fianna Fáil, but there was also a, a poll in it about the satisfaction within the government and there were 43% of the public polled were satisfied with the performance, 49% were not. But among Fianna Fáil voters, the dissatisfaction was almost 60%, which means 
means that it's going to be a very difficult sell for, for Micheál Martin in the next short term to actually go to his, his own voters and say, I know you're not happy about this, but I promise it's doing the right thing. Like it's some sort of spinach that it's, you know, it's good for you, but you're not going to like it. I think if you're a party leader, you, you, you fail if you only take account of your own voters. You've got to think about the middle ground. And that's clearly if you're on 27%, 20, whatever he is on, he's got to think about the rest of the country. And as Richie said, when, well, you didn't quite say it, but, but we're, not, we're not in the <laughs> as mood. As Richie intimated. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That's exactly the way I was looking for. As Richie intimated, we're not in the mood for an election right now. I don't think most people would want it. I don't think, personally, I, perhaps I'm very naive. I just don't think it would be good for the country. I think it's very important that Ireland appears as a you know, firm, united, rational actor in Europe at this moment in, in our history. I, I, I think it would be insane to be uh, engaged in an election campaign. I was delighted that Michal Martin stood up and said what he said. And uh, I think it's a great result. And it's, it's one of those moments where, personally, I feel delighted to be Irish. And, and I'm sure many people would say, no doubt, that whenever there is a big international crossroads coming, that it is best that the government be able to concentrate on that and not be looking over its shoulder about what one is coming. But I saw the point made during the week, I don't know which, which of you wants to respond to this, but then isn't it very odd that Fianna Fáil would say, yeah, we're going to you know, hold the government to account, we are the true opposition, we are not just government on the back benches, that we are really wielding the levers here. And then when the electorate might come along and say, well, can we please elect you into government so that you can run the country, then they would go, oh, God, no, that would be totally the wrong thing. And we can't possibly have us running the country at a time of such flux. Richie, what do you think of that? I like in, in the the, tac- the tactic they have at the moment, uh, Fianna Fáil. I mean, it leaves them open to being absolutely gutted by by Sinn Féin, who can claim to be uh, the real opposition and have done that uh, quite quite effectively. Um, Personally, I, I, I think Sinn Féin are the real opposition until you get up as far as their economic policies, which would scare me out the door, to be honest. But I, I think for Fianna Fáil, uh, it's a very, very fine um, a balancing, balancing act. And they, they have to be, for this to work, they need to be able to show where they're, where they're managing to encourage Fianna Gael to take hard decisions. And I think we have a government at the moment that doesn't really take the hard decisions. They, they're taking the easier wins and, and the hard decisions are, are being left for, for another day because they're very, very difficult uh, to push through because of the dollar arithmetic at the moment. So... Uh, for Fianna Fáil, I mean, it's it's such a tightrope. Like, how do you claim that that you've influenced uh, policy mm. uh, while while being in, in opposition? It's it, it's really tricky. Well, on that, Ilona, isn't there a danger now that although Fianna Fáil will say that the existing confidence and supply deal still applies, so that all of the clauses that Fine Gael had to introduce under that they do still apply, but there is going to be this perception that now uh, Fianna Fáil have loosened the constraints on Fine Gael, which means that they are effectively handing their main rivals, the people who they want to keep out of power to some degree, almost an unchecked run of the next 12 months where they can almost demonstrate what they would do if there were no constraints. It's a, it's a very dangerous uh, gambit, isn't it? I think it's really dangerous. I think it's really dangerous for Michal Martin especially because we know the Fine Gael don't want to go to the electorate right now and they can use all the, the things of you know stability of government but it's not the time that they want to if go If Brexit now. weren't there, wouldn't they want to go now? Not sure they would, because I think uh, you know things we want have to been cash left in on to one 32%? side. Well, probably the the ZAT and the, there've been lots of positive things that they've gotten in under their watch, such as the the abortion uh, referendum. You know, all of those things have have come under their watch, so that's good. But at the same stage, they don't want to go to the electorate. 
Michal Martin um, is, I think, leaving himself at risk uh, uh, at a power play within his own party. The problem is who will make that power play because really they have to be seen to be, as you said, holding the, the government to ransom and getting something for it and it looks like they got nothing from, mm. from them. Uh, very quickly before I go to the break, Tom, the satisfaction with the party leaders. Uh, Michal Martin is at 40%, which is still, you know, uh, it's down four since the last comparable poll eight months ago, but it's still fairly high as far as political leaders go. Uh, Mary Lynn McDonald is down nine points to 37. Brendan Howland, 24. But Leo Varadkar, 49%. It's a very high uh, re- representation or a very high satisfaction rate for somebody who has never actually led his campaign into a general election. All he's ever done is had referendums. But for someone who has never actually gone to the public and sort of been vindicated in that kind of broader national sense, 49% is very, very high, isn't it? Yeah, it's a remarkably, remarkably good rate. He must, be, he must be very pleased with himself. I've never understood these political sense, the, the political leader satisfaction surveys. I've tried to get people to explain it to me many times. You know, what's the question? What's the answer? What are the mm. criteria? You know, how, how, could, how can the others... Do well. I never. And, you know, what, what are we asking here? Are you leading the party well? If you're not, so are you, you know, satisfied so with, uh, for example, Brendan Howland's performance as leader of the Labour Party? Is that not a fairly clear cut question? To me, it's not. I mean, am I speaking as a as a what as a as a? Since you're as going a, to, doesn't it? And I think yeah. that's I think that's what's happened under Leo Varadkar's watch. We see two referendums that have brought out young people to vote, and I think that's a big change because that's that's always been the problem that in our general elections they have tended to be slow to come out. And I think now we've got a new group who are coming out and are voting, and the hope is, I suppose, for Leo that they will continue to vote and that they will be there to vote him back in next. I time. think it might be a slightly dangerous gambit, though, if Leo Varadkar is backing on all those younger people that have been energised by referendums when considering that it's young people who are most sidelined and squeezed by the housing crisis and the cost of rents in urban areas. So I don't know if you'd want to lean with that. Uh, just before we go to a break, I want to read a quote from uh, Liam Weeks, who was in the Sunday Independent today. Uh, he has quoted uh, a political leader who said, um, I will not oppose the central thrust of its policy. If it's going in the right direction, I do not believe that it should be deviated from its course or tripped up on macroeconomic issues. No other policy of opposition will conform to the real needs of the Irish people any other policy of opposition would amount simply to a cynical exploitation of short-term political opportunities for a political advantage which would be inevitably equally short-lived. I will not play that game. That is not Micheál Martin speaking during the week. That is Alan Dukes when he signed up to the Talis strategy in 1987. He was dumped out of party leadership three years later. Who knows what's <laughs> going to happen to Micheál Martin. Uh, Gavin Riley with you at On The Record. Our panellists staying with us. We'll be back in just a moment. On The Record. On News Talk. Welcome back. It's Gavin Riley on, on the record this morning on News Talk. 53106 is the text number. We're also on Twitter at News Talk FM and at Gav Riley. Our panel this morning, Dr. Tom, Dr. Alona Duffy. Uh, Dr. Tom Alloy, I nearly gave you an honorary doctorate there. Perhaps you've already got one, Tom, anyway. Uh, congratulations on your ad hoc uh, arising in the world of academia. Uh, and Richie Oakley are all with us. Um, there's a lot of comments uh, in the papers this weekend about health issues, not least because the uh, National Children's Hospital, which we might get to in just a moment, but obviously because the uh, landmark abortion legislation completed its journey through the Iraq this week. It's due to be signed into law by President Michael D. Higgins sometime between Tuesday and Thursday. The introduction of those services is apparently only 16 days away. Um, Dr. Lona Duffy, you're a GP practice uh, in Monaghan. Are you going to be signing up to, to permit this or to offer this in your own surgery? 
At present, I won't be signing up, but it's not because of a conscientious objection. It's just literally because we can't provide any more services than we're already doing. And I suppose that that's the big thing. This was pushed out as being something that every GP is going to be providing. And I think Leo Varadkar really pushed that. And it was nearly like, well, I was a doctor, so I'm mm. telling you everybody's going to be doing it. And that's not the way it is. Every GP practice does different things. We're generalists, but lots of us will have special interests. So, you know, some people will be doing minor surgery, vasectomies. Others will be doing long-term contraception like marinas and and some GPs surgeries will be able to provide a termination of pregnancy services and, and you don't do that that, that other long term contraceptives you don't offer that at present no but there are GPs that I there, there are GP practices nearby that I'll refer to and we have other special interests in our practice like sports medicine uh, fertility kind of workups and things like that so I suppose, what's the issue? I mean, this is coming very fast and there have been, you know, huge concerns raised by doctors, both in general practice and especially the hospitals saying, you know, we're not ready and you've given this date. And I know you have to have a date to push to get things done, but uh, it's still going to be a struggle to have the services available in the hospitals. And we know that a number of hospitals have said they just will not be able to provide this service. And again, we know the hospitals are overrun with work. So I think Ailish O'Hanlon has an article in the Sunday Independent and I think it's quite clear, like what we've got to ensure is that the introduction of this service does not mean that there is a reduction in other services in the hospital. So other patients aren't having delays because of the introduction of this service. And that's got to be built in. And it's the same in general practice. I think what we'll find is there will be GP practices and family planning clinics throughout the country who will provide it and people will kind of go to them. And I actually think many patients will prefer this because I know over the years having patients come to me seeking termination of pregnancy, a lot of the time their greatest words that anyone would know that would be in their notes all of that and now if you're providing it you have to medical legally you're going to have to have documentation Is there not something of a danger though that if you have a situation where and I completely understand your point and that it's just not a speciality that you have and you don't want to get into it particularly if you're not wild about the way in which the uh, the capacity or the infrastructure has been laid out but it could be quite dangerous if you have situations knowing that abortion is still such a divisive and sensitive topic that there will be some GP's practices which will be known for being uh, the, the local doctor who will facilitate an abortion and that they could be targeted or could find it very difficult on a societal level to be able to pull through knowing how contentious all of this is going to be. Well, I'm hoping that's not going to happen. And and I suppose more importantly, what I hope is that for the patient who does present and is in a crisis um, pregnancy and wants to, to end that pregnancy, that they'll never face the fact of going into a surgery and feeling that, that, that they can't find someone to, to offer them this service. So I think we've got to be guaranteed that the helpline and the, the website are available and will provide both the counselling and the support um, to those women and that they'll be able to easily access the service if that's what they decide. Because I have to tell you, you know, over the years, over my 20 years in general practice, I would say probably in the order of two out of ten. So one in five would go ahead with the termination when you talk to them. And, and yes, we're near the border. So there were lots of options for us that made it maybe less difficult in the mm. early stages than having to travel but to you, the UK. But you could have but an extra influx of people now coming across the border who might be looking for your help. I'm this. not sure. I'm not sure. I know Leo Radker has said that it'll happen. I'm not sure that's going to happen. And I think this can work seamlessly as long as everything's up and running. But I suppose the big problem is with the Department of Health, the HSE and our government, promises are always made about services and suddenly it's all there for the beginning and then then suddenly it disappears. Suddenly the resources are gone. The website's not available. It's not updated. The helpline isn't really giving what it's meant to give. And I, I think 
termination of pregnancy will be available throughout this country easily for the women who want it but that's we've got to have all the supports in place including the ultrasound and things are changing even this week now a decision has been made with regards to a thing called anti-D so if you're rhesus negative in your blood grouping um, okay. you know you may you're going to have to now have a blood test to confirm whether you are and um, if you ne- you may need anti-D and that will have to be provided in a hospital setting so again we're putting more into the hospitals and we're going to have a case where there could be a waiting time before you can be seen in a hospital so no of this has been fully ironed out. I think it still can be, but I do think mm. this, you know, Twitter, you know, frenzy that I, I, I do feel that Leo and Simon want to have on the 1st of January, it's, it's here, it's up and running fully. You know, they need to back off on that and they need to say it is being introduced, but there may be some delays. Is there a lot of short term thinking on this, Richie, that it's a lot more about the kind of political willpower and that they've forgotten that there is a whole capacity thing from a hospital system, which is already under an awful lot of pressure as it is, and then suddenly we'll have this uh, thrust upon it at a couple of weeks notice? Yeah, I thought January the first was was um, it didn't leave them a lot of space to get things in place. I mean, you do have to remember that the majority of of terminations will be done through uh, GPs, which is involving taking med, uh, you know medication, mm. um, and that that should be should be okay uh, once there are enough uh, GPs who, who who provide the service. Well, between I, nine I, to twelve I, weeks, I, then, I really and that's hope like, we, right. we we covered this extensively, um, and, and our paper took a particular position where where we were in favour of repeal the, the Eighth Amendment. I, I hope the whole debate changes now. Um, we have an opportunity where, you, you know, they're, they're, you will have anti-abortion people still trying to push this. and There have to be exclusion zones around uh, hospitals and that's going to be legislated for by Simon Harris to stop these type of protests, to stop any any people being uh, tackled like they are in the, in, in the US while they're trying to go in. But mm. I really and that's going to need a separate this, law, which isn't on the pipeline I, yet I, either. Eilish is getting to this point. Eilish Hanlon in the Sunday Independent gets this point as well. The, the, the change in debate is this. If you are serious about trying to reduce down the amount of abortions Irish women have, this is a golden opportunity now to focus on counselling, support, backup, help, on, and a whole improvement in, in, in women's healthcare. So when there is someone in a crisis pregnancy, the options uh, are, are available to them and they have a chance of maybe going ahead with that pregnancy and having their child. And I think that that that's really important. But all the energy that went into the debate, pro-choice, anti-abortion, let's focus that now on the reality, which is that we've repealed the Eighth Amendment, we're going to have terminations. So let's now focus the energy on making sure Ireland is a really good place to seek health care for women. Alona, you want to come back on that? One important thing that they completely missed is prevention of crisis pregnancy. And at a time when they could have introduced you know, free contraception for women, the long-acting contraception, such as the marina coil and the, the implant on, they failed to do that. And that was the one big thing that's been pushed and that that they refuse to do anything on and yeah. I think it's a big mistake and something that we need to be pushing for. It was one of the ancillary recommendations as well from the Oireachtas Committee which was officially adopted but which doesn't seem to be making much headway. Perhaps it's just that it's not getting uh, media attraction. Uh, Tom, the HSE is not known really as an organisation that can change quickly so people will be right to, to have some doubts in their minds about whether this can be delivered as quickly as politicians would like. I suppose we're always going to doubt the HSE at this stage but that, that doesn't mean it won't be it won't be introduced, and, and you know it's perhaps time for the public to step out of this discussion and, and, and leave it to to doctors. Really, um, you know, it's a big ask, though, for something that was a nationwide referendum seven months ago, and you want well, them to back off now. Well, not really. I mean, the people have spoken, <laughs> said this a few times now uh, in this in this conversation, and and now it's it's quite it's quite technical, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the things Alona said were you know things that most people wouldn't think of, and and. Uh, the, certainly, I, I, I don't know enough. I mean, the one thing I would like to see is legislation around exclusion zones. Uh, you know, working near Hollis Street Hospital, it was really distressing to 
to kind of think what what uh, women going in to have babies must have felt when some of the protests were going on mm. and the placards and all that kind of nonsense. And uh, you know, I really hope that 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 happens. But that's and that's a non medical issue. You know? That's just a that's actually an interesting discussion around freedom of speech, uh, where you can have views either way. But 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 the the actual you know how 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 these things are implemented in the HSC. Well, I, I certainly don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with anyone who tries to get anything through the system at the moment. Mm. There. Speaking of uh, HSE spending, and I, I said I'd, I'd come back to this. I do want to come back to it before we have to let you go. Um, the apparent cost of the new National Children's Hospital originally four hundred and four million, now one point four billion. Um, Alona, I, I can't fathom uh, any real tangible reason why the cost would run that high. Can you surmise? Any reason why it would suddenly reach over budget so much? Well, I, I can't. And, and when you look at in this article, Susan Mitchell has another fantastic article and talks about the, the dearest hospital in the world at the moment is one in Australia. Yeah. And and again, but it has even, three times more beds than three this times is more beds. And their average cost per their cost per bed is one point eight seven million, and we're going to be at three million a bed. So obviously they're going to be logistics and we know that it's where it's being built. Obviously it's, you know, if it had been a greenfield site, perhaps outside on the outskirts of the city, maybe all of those things. But nothing can explain this ever increasing. It's like exponentially rising. It's just, it's unbelievable. And the reality is, the problem with all of this is that this money will affect other things that are going to happen in healthcare, And it's a bit like another article that talks about medication and approval of medication on Michael Barry, who is in there on behalf of the government to, to be the watchdog there saying all this political interference means that money is being diverted to other areas, but meaning that the, the basic core services are being compromised as a result. Mm. And that's a real risk with this. So you have uh, an extra a hospital that's now going to cost £400 million than it was supposed to. At the same time, we have a government that wants to, to cut taxes so radically, Richie. I, 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 I will not be surprised if the, if, if the National Children's Hospital gets over £2 billion or closer to £3 billion. I mean, we, we, we used to have this with, with road uh, development until they kind of changed the way they announced the price, the cost of yeah. road, road development. But we, ha- we did have that. Uh, I, I drive past that site uh, a lot and uh, I don't know how they get a lot of construction in and out of that site while next to a working hospital at the same time and I imagine that's where some of the costs uh, Simon Harris has said it's because he wants to build a better hospital than the one previously envisioned I, I'd well, like to the see the turning of the sod when it was only one billion I'd it was like a pretty to see good hospital it, exactly then. what he's added to it uh, to, to make it to make it better um, I, I think that I think sadly the costs are going to continue to rise Tom closing thoughts on that who's responsible and, and and why are they not being you know why are they not sitting in front of a dual committee you know and, and it doesn't it's not this doesn't work right across the public sector in in my own place of work trinity we regularly build buildings you know on target we'll have two buildings this year big buildings and they will come in exactly pretty much on and target. presumably when you, you take and a contractor you tell that or they give you what it's going to cost and you say right build it for that it doesn't keep rising and you, you you hold them to that contract and and it, it shouldn't be very difficult and and you're the state you make the laws it's really you know all the cards are stacked in your favor Everybody knew this was going to be a difficult site, but equally, it's a site with lots of public transport, lots of advantage, advantages to it as well, one of the best hospitals in the country next door. But we all knew this. This has been discussed ad nauseum. So who is responsible? Why are they not appearing in front of a, a Doyle committee? Why are we not seeking to understand this? And, and why are we not going back to 
the people who signed the contract and saying, you signed the contract. You said earlier that national sovereignty isn't cheap, nor is apparently building things in Dublin. But I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. In, my some, areas. <laughs> in, in some areas. Maybe they can get Trinity College's expertise on how to do things on time. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. My huge thanks to our panel today, Tom Malloy, who is Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College, and now apparently an honorary PhD. Congratulations again. <laughs> uh, Dr. Alona Duffy, GP in Monaghan, and Medical Director for the North East Doctor on Call Service, uh, and Richard Oakley, Editor of the Times Ireland Edition. Thank you all very much for joining me. We'll be back with lots more for you in just a moment. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk.